Good morning, church family. And happy Super Bowl Sunday. Woo! If you're a Chiefs or Niners fan, I guess. So, And also happy Groundhog Day. All right, I wasn't paying attention uh, to the shadow thing or not, but I don't know if you've seen the Bill Murray um, movie, Groundhog Day, but I'm really hoping that today's not my Groundhog Day to keep living over and over again until I get this sermon right. Okay, so be praying for me for that, that I don't wake up tomorrow and here I am again until I get it right. So, um, no, but all joking aside, my name is Matt Mitchell and I'm the Danville campus pastor here. And like uh, Pastor Chris said, I've been here for a little bit over a year, and I just have to say it's been a fantastic year um, for me and my family, and I'm, I'm so honored to be one of the pastors here at Harmony Bible Church. So if you're new to Harmony or if have, you haven't been here for a while, uh, I'll catch up to speed. So we've been in a, a sermon series called Assured, which is all about the assurance of our salvation. And we've been going through the letter of 1 John, and John was none other than one of the disciples of Jesus, okay? So that's pretty easy. And John was probably one of the youngest disciples that Jesus called to himself in his earthly ministry. So John was probably in his late teens, maybe early 20s, when Jesus called him to follow him. And now John's in his 90s, and he's the, kind of the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus, and is writing this letter to different churches in that area, in Asia Minor. And the theme that he has for us today is a theme we keep seeing over and over again, and that's the theme of love. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, especially if you are here last week, you know what I'm talking about, all right? <laughs> Somebody was uh, driving that home pretty hard. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be starting to read in verse 7. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a Black Pew Bible either in front of you or under your seat, and we're going to be on page 804 in the Pew Bible. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you and we just ask that you would illuminate your word to us. 
God, that we would have open hearts and open ears to hear what you have to say to us today through John and your word spoken through him, Lord. And God, I just pray that you would take us deeper into your love. You would take us deeper into the gospel that would go deep down into our hearts, Lord, and it would change, change us from the inside out. Lord, we just pray that you would use the rest of this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so right out of the gate, let's look at verse seven and eight. John writes, beloved, that is who we are to God. We are the beloved. We're gonna unpack that in this sermon. Let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God. Then we get this, because God is love. John is telling us love is from God. It's very origin is from God because God himself is love. Love's not only a way to describe God, even though we can do that. You know, God is loving. That's true. That's biblical. But at the very core of his being, God is love. That's who he is. So John states God is love, and one of the greatest demonstrations of this can be seen in the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, so last week, Pastor Chris talked about false teaching and false doctrine, and when people start to veer off, it's because of one of two things. One, they deny the person and work of Jesus, and the second is they deny the Trinity, that God is one, yet equally exists in three persons. And God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, shows us that God exists. Here's what it shows. God exists within relationship. We have a relational God, and he shows that within himself and the Godhead. So God in his very being operates within relationship to himself, and the reason this makes sense is because love can't exist in isolation. You have, love has to be reciprocated, it has to be between others, and we see that otherness in the Godhead, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Here's a few scriptural examples of this inner relationship of the Trinity. If you want to jot these down, I'm not going to quote the full verse, but if you want to jot them down for later, you can. Um, so Mark 1, 11, at Jesus' baptism, we see Jesus getting baptized, the Father's voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Then we see the Spirit descending upon Jesus. We see the Trinity represented as baptism. John three thirty five says that the Father loves the Son. John fourteen thirty one says, that Jesus loves the Father. John 16, 14, Jesus says, the Spirit will glorify me. John 17, 24 says, I'll just read this whole one, is that good? Father, I desire they all, that they also, talking about the disciples, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. God has a love for God and God is sacrificially self-giving within himself in the different persons of the Trinity. And that's why our text says that God is love. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. There's a mutual delight in each other in the persons of the blessed Trinity so that each divine person delights to glorify the rest. God even thus glorifies himself. All right, now picture with me the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, before anything was ever made, pre-existent, nothing was there but God. And he's existing as the embodiment of perfect love. That's who our God is. Our God is love. All right, now check this out. This is where it gets really good. We're going to put these on the screen, but I'm just going to read them for you, okay? 
the Gospel of John, the same John that wrote our letter, 1 John, in John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then two chapters later, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments before he's betrayed and goes to the cross. And he prays to the Father and says, Father, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All right, so this is amazing. What Jesus is saying is the same love that the Father has for me before the beginning of time as the second person of the Trinity, that's the love I have for you as my disciples, as my followers. And then he says, Father, the love that you have for me, put that love inside of my followers. Put that inside of my disciples. And that's possible because of the work of the Spirit. So that's what it means to abide in God. We're caught up into the love of the Trinity. We're caught up into the fellowship of the Trinity. You know, picture, picture a man and a woman that are passionately in love, right? And they get married. All right, hopefully when people get married, they're passionately in love, right? And so... And they have this love and it's self-giving and they're laying their life down for each other and they just have the best love. You know, marriages aren't always that way, but, you know, let's pretend this is the perfect marriage. And then one day they decide, hey, let, let's, let's, have, let's start a family. And so they might say something like this. You know, this love that we have with each other is so great. Let's create others in our image to experience and share in this love with us. Because I know when you decide to have kids, that's exactly what you said, right? Just like that? <laughs> um, no, for some of you, you're probably like, we've got like five unplanned miracles, you know? Like, we didn't plan anything. Um, and that's okay too, right? But what I want to point out here with this illustration is that there's, there's nothing unplanned with the triune God, okay? And he has existed as relational love from eternity past, and this is his amazing idea and plan to create us as his image bearers, and that we could share in that love with him as sons and daughters by grace. Amen? That's his plan. So Jesus, he's our example, okay? We're gonna keep going here. John tells us that love is from God because God is love, but now John points us to the very catalyst and epitome in which love comes to us from God. All right, verse nine. Verse nine in our Bibles In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. All right, this is God's rescue plan right here. God's love has come down to the world in the face of Jesus. God loved the world in this way, that he sent Jesus to the world so that we might live through him. That we might live through him. Just like Pastor Chris said earlier, eternal life is right now. This isn't only a someday thing, this is a right now thing. God sent Jesus to the world so that we might live through him. Is there anybody in here that wants to live today? Amen, because that's what this text is saying. That's what John is saying to us. And it's no wonder Jesus himself said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. To know Jesus is to have life and have it abundantly. All right, join me in going even deeper here. John is taking us into the nitty-gritty. In in verse 10, it says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. All right, let's all get this straight today. This is one of the best verses in our entire passage. 
In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. This is not our thing. This is God's thing. Okay, this is not something we initiated. Oh, God, I loved you, and, you know, thanks for loving me back. It's, no, he initiated this first. This, had, well, this was not our thing. This is his thing. And he came after us before we ever chose him. You know, a really good definition of love that John pretty much just gave us here to summarize it is we did not love God, but his love came after us anyway. Our example of God's love in Jesus is everything. We see the example of God's love in the Trinity come to us because we see the Son given for us. You know, in any religion, any religion can blindly claim that their God loves them. Anybody can say that, right? But it's only within Christianity. It's only within Christianity where God clearly demonstrates that he spared no expense at all in coming, leaving his throne in heaven to become a servant, to lay down his life for his enemies so that he could make them his family, right? No other religion says that. That's what our gospel is, all right? And so we can't believe today that, you know, God's up in heaven and we're down here and we're just trying our best to please him. You know, I just hope at the end of my life that, you know, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. That's what a lot of common religions believe, okay? That's not Christianity, That is not what we believe today, okay? So if you came in believing that, leave that at the door and never pick it up again and listen to the rest of this sermon and really what John is telling us because he's going to tell us what is really at the core of our faith. Let's look at the end of verse 10. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation is just a fancy word of talking about the atonement or what happened at the cross, And, you know, you and I have a death sentence. And in our rebellion against God, because of Adam's sin, we don't love God back. We've stiff-armed God and said, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't care what the word says. I want to live life my own way. That's what original sin has done to us. And in our rebellion, we deserve justice and we deserve punishment, and rightly so. What would a world be like without justice? This world was made for the worship of God but we've made it about worshiping ourselves. Everything was made for him, but we've made it all about us. So we find ourselves on death row with no way out unless unless someone would dare to intervene for us. But if someone does decide to intervene, if somebody dares to do that, they must be one, innocent and not on death row like us. Somebody has the same condition as us, they can't help us, okay? It has to be somebody who's innocent, not on death row. And two, it has to be somebody that's so powerful that if they do decide to intervene for us, that the powers at bay cannot deny them. If this person does decide to intervene, that the ones who are holding us captive, they can't deny the intervention because this person's so powerful because they can do whatever they want. All right? In the Chronicles of Narnia, I don't know if you have any Narnia fans in here, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's a story where, um, well, I won't tell the whole story. Hopefully, a lot of you know the story in here. Lucy finds this wardrobe that leads into this magical land called Narnia. And her brother Edmund, who's kind of a pest, he follows her into the wardrobe without her knowing. And then he encounters the villain in in the story called the White Witch, and long story short, he's seduced by her, um, offers some treats, and he, she gives him this hollow promise that he can rule Narnia with her. But ultimately, that's a lie, and Edmund ends up imprisoned by her instead. 
And then about midway through the story, the real king of Narnia, the lion, Aslan, sends a rescue party to rescue Edmund and bring him back to safety into his camp. And then we get to this amazing scene in the book, or the movie, if you've seen the movie, where the white witch is carried in on a throne by her like henchmen into the, right into the center of Aslan's camp and right up to Aslan, Aslan's feet and demands for Edmund's life to be given back to her because he's a traitor and any traitor's blood belongs to the white witch. And then she quotes and says, because the laws of Narnia were built upon this. And then Aslan gives this amazing rebuke to her and says, don't quote the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. And I love that line because here we have Aslan, he knows what's at stake. He knows that Edmund's guilty and is deserving of death. And if you know the story, if you don't, I'm kind of spoiling it for you, so sorry about that. But the, the story goes that Aslan goes into his tent alone with the white witch and they have this meeting and he offers up his own life in exchange for Edmund to go free. And what's so amazing about the characters at play here is up until this point, Nobody likes Edmund. <laughs> Edmund is a jerk and he betrayed his family and he's like, a, a, you know, he's the ultimate like worst older brother to Lucy and he's done nothing right. He's betrayed his family but Aslan shows his love for someone that has rebelled and completely betrayed him. Does that sound familiar? So you could say it this way. This is love not that Edmund loved Aslan, but that Aslan loved Edmund and gave his life in exchange. Really seeing Jesus as our example of God's love to us leads us to express God's love outwardly to others. And you see that in the life of Edmund, right? So Edmund, he's saved by Aslan and he's shown his love, and the rest of the story, he's entirely different. There's this huge character change and heart change from the inside out in Edmund. So verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verses 7, 11, and 19 in our text, they all pretty much summarize the same message, and that's this, that knowing God's love for you in Jesus always results in God's love flowing out from you to others. Knowing God's love for you in Jesus always results with God's love flowing out from you to other people. It always does. So really we could say this. If, if you don't love other people, if you're not sacrificially a servant and putting the needs of others above yourself and showing love like we see in Christ, if you're not loving other people, you don't understand how much God loves you in the gospel. That's what it's saying. So that's your application today is look up first before trying to love other people. Know how much God loves you in the gospel and that he's given the son for you. So we really have this easy way to remember it. We have to go vertical before we go horizontal, okay? Can you say that with me? Vertical before horizontal. Okay, I, I could tell you're really excited about that. Um, so, vertical before horizontal, right? We look vertical first to the gospel that God is love and that God has loved us in Jesus, and that always empowers us to love other people, right? So you guys know, you know the great commandment. Deuteronomy 6, and then Jesus quotes it in the New Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second's like this, love your neighbor as yourself. But 
before we're ever capable of doing that, before we start there, before we're ever even capable, we have to start with God's love for God displayed in the Trinity. God is love and that he has shown us his love in sending his son. That's what the gospel is. We have to start there and when you believe that, that's what makes you a believer. That's what saves you and then as a result, you say, man, God, I love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength because of what you've done for me and what you've opened my eyes to. And as a result, that love is going to flow out from you to other people. All right, so we start God's love for God, God's love for us, and that's when we can obey the greatest commandment. I'm gonna love God back. I have no other response. And I'm gonna love other people like he has loved me. So looking vertically and abiding in the gospel in God's love, that's what it means to abide. Looking vertical, remembering the gospel, meditating on that, being reminded of that, that's what it means to abide. And so we arrive at some really seriously important application today that abiding in God's love will result in two major outcomes. Abiding in the gospel, abiding in God's love will result in two major outcomes. Our, the first one's this, if you wanna write it down. Abiding in God's love will result in our witness for God. So within our passage, we have a couple examples showing this connection that loving others is the true evidence that God is among us. That when we love others, God's among us. And verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God, that is in his true form, yet if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, John is saying, No one has really ever seen God in his full glory. No one has ever seen God in his full glory. But when his love can be clearly seen among us here in the church, then in a way, God himself can be seen. And verse 20 kind of says the same thing in a different way. It says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if God is love, which he is, and we love one another as the church, then God himself is on display, amen? All right, think about it this way. Anything that we do in the church that's absent of God's love is gonna fall flat on its face. Anything that we do in the church, if we're not loving one another, loving God and loving one another, it's gonna be idle, it's gonna be unfruitful, it's not gonna go anywhere. So if we don't love each other in here, forget loving our enemies, which Jesus also talks about in the New Testament, right? Forget reaching our neighbors, our schools, our workplaces. Forget trying to reach the nations for Christ. If God's love is not abiding amongst us right here, we have no ministry to those beyond our walls. That's why this is so stinking important, looking vertically together to the gospel and then abiding in that love together will result in an unstoppable witness to a lost and dying world. That's why Jesus said himself in John 13, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how the world's going to know that we belong to him is if we love each other in here because it's going to get out beyond these walls, amen? So the the second major outcome that results from us abiding in God's love is this. Our confidence before God. Our personal confidence when we stand before God someday. So look down back at your Bibles with me at verse 17. Verse 17 says, by this, which is talking about the previous verses, 
which are about abiding in God's love. By this abiding in God's love, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. You know, a a day of judgment is coming. Christ is going to return and he's going to set all things right. And I'm longing for that day. It's going to be a terrible day of judgment, but it's going to be a great day for the believer because Jesus is going to make all things right. Amen? And at Christ's return, the fact that we should be confident is entirely dependent upon who we already are to God. That's what our confidence lies in because this isn't a self-confidence. This is a God confidence. This isn't confidence, you know, like, you know, I'm just pretty confident that I've done good enough. No, I'm confident that Jesus has measured up for me and that he's taken my place on the cross and that he's rose again and that I can have eternal life in that message. That's our confidence. It's a confidence in Christ alone. And here's what we must remember. The text isn't saying that confidence is just gonna come, out of, come to us from out of nowhere. That one day we'll wake up and be like, man, I wasn't confident yesterday, I wasn't confident yesterday, but today I'm feeling pretty confident in the Lord. It's not gonna come to us like that, okay? I wish it was like that. But what the text is saying is that confidence will come to us when we actively and routinely choose to abide in God and remember that He abides in us. That's where real change happens. When we carve out time during the week and during the day, even, and these little random moments where we didn't think we even have or we're remembering, we're looking vertical and remembering, man, I belong to God. He is love and he's loved me in Jesus and I don't have anything to fear. I can have confidence because he initiated this, not me. So a challenge I have for us today is where are you setting aside time and space to abide in God's love seen in the power of the gospel? Where are you setting aside that time? Because if you're not setting aside that time, don't expect to have any confidence because it won't be there. Confidence comes from abiding in God and remembering who you are in the gospel. So I know there's many of us here who have not been made mature in love yet or perfected in love yet, as the text would say. And you know how I know that? It's because there's a lot of us in here that aren't confident in our daily walk with the Lord. So if you're not confident in your daily walk with the Lord and you don't have confidence, Judgment day isn't going to fall into place, but if you're confident in your daily walk with the Lord, judgment day is going to take care of itself. You know that, man, I'm confident in who I am because of the gospel. Judgment day, when I stand before the Lord, he's not going to be judging me based off of what I've done. He's going to be judging me based off my belief in Jesus, okay? And so, but there's some of us today that are, are, are burdened by this, and, and you know, you think you're a burden to God. You know, like, I don't know if he, he wants to hear my prayers. I feel like I'm a nuisance to him, or man, I, I've just struggled with this and that for so long, you know, I just feel like he's kind of done with me kind of talking to him about this or, man, I'm not sure if I'm going to get into heaven someday because maybe when I stand before God, there's this secret sin that I, I forgot about and I haven't confessed yet and he's going to hold that over me at the judgment. Some of us have these thoughts in the room right now. You know, and Pastor, Pastor Chris talked last week about false teaching and false doctrine and that's dangerous because false teaching, it's what it is is placing your confidence in a false message. You're placing your, your confidence in a false message that's not true. That's super dangerous. But then there's something that's equally as dangerous, and this is the enemy at work 
just the same way, just on the other side, it's when the believer, the beloved, doesn't have confidence in the true message. Are you with me here? So there's two ditches. It's not having it's having confidence in a false message. And this isn't just like, oh, I'm okay because I'm not a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. This is placing our message, this is placing our confidence in any false message that's over Jesus. It's over the gospel. Like anything we're pointing our life to, I like living for this. This is the good news of my life is to pursue a career or a great name or find a spouse or my kids or make a lot of money or whatever. Anything we're placing our confidence in over the gospel, that's false. But then where the enemy gets a lot of us in here in the church is we don't have any confidence in the true message that God is love and that he's shown us his love in the son and that we can be fully confident on judgment day because he's going to be looking at us like he looks at his son. That's having confidence in the true message. So I know there's people experiencing a lack of confidence today. And the other reason I know that's true is because I've struggled with that. That's me. I've struggled with this before in my past and still can. And the only thing that brings me out of it The only thing that brings me out of it is looking vertically first and remembering the gospel and that I'm loved by God. God is love and he's spared no expense to save me and I'm not just some step kid who he tolerates and like wants to be in the corner and like doesn't want much to do with. That's not true. I'm his adopted son whom he loves and he came after me before I ever knew who he even was and he loves me and he takes great delight in me. And when you start believing that, because that's the same truth that, that is true about all of us in here. That's how he feels about all of us. When we start to believe that, it will change our entire life. You'll start walking around completely differently because you have a supernatural confidence, a spiritual supernatural confidence that's not in yourself and it's entirely in Christ. So this confidence, this kind of confidence, it allows us to stand in the very presence of God with no fear, with zero fear. That's what this confidence does for us. Look down with me at your Bibles, verse 18. There's no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. You know, the great opposites are not love and hate. You know, you see somebody tattooed with that on their knuckles. It's really love and fear. And as the famous green theologian Yoda says, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. All right. That was my best Yoda, okay? I tried. All right, so... That's not really what John's getting at here, okay? But that is a really great quote from Star Wars, all right? And, but what John's really saying, it's right underneath our nose right here, all right? Look back down at the text. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love because fear has to do with punishment. If we're fearful before God, without confidence, without assurance, it's because we still think there might be punishment around the corner for us. That's what we really think deep down. But when this is the case, when we're fearing punishment, we are missing one of the greatest truths at the center of the gospel. And that truth is this, get this, 
that Jesus has already taken the punishment that was laid up for us upon himself at the cross. He's already taken the punishment. There is no punishment for the beloved on judgment day. Did you know that? There's no punishment for the Christian on judgment day because Jesus has already taken that punishment. So remember the the word propitiation from earlier? It's really just a word for the atonement or what happened at the cross. And two things happen at the cross. One is our sin was taken away from us and it was put on Jesus. And then the punishment and the justice and the wrath that our sin deserved was poured out on Jesus instead of us. We were the guilty ones, but that guilt went to Jesus and he was punished as the guilty one so that we could be called the innocent one. That's why Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. Elise Fitzpatrick, she's one of my favorite biblical counseling authors, she puts it this way in her book, Because He Loves Me. She's got this great quote. She says, The Father poured out all his wrath on his Son. There is no more left for you or me. He won't condemn you now because condemning the innocent is an abomination to him. And that's what he says you are, innocent. He won't punish you for your sins because to do so would be unjust. Someone's already paid for those sins and it would be unfair to punish you for them again. Such a great quote that just really highlights our passage One of the greatest marks of a mature believer is someone who fully believes that their sin will not be punished by God someday. They believe in the full gospel, that on the cross, the full outpouring of God's wrath and punishment was put on Christ instead of me. Jesus in my place. Jesus in our place. That's what the gospel is. And why did he do this? It's because he loves us. It all comes down to a right view of God's love for God and that he has shown us this amazing love for us in his son Jesus. And abiding in that reality brings us confidence. It drives out all fear and it changes everything. I want to close with a familiar verse that most of you probably know, especially if you grew up in the church. It was probably one of the first verses you ever learned. And it holds just as much weight and power today than it ever has. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son as Jesus so that whoever believes so that whoever believes whoever abides in him will not perish but they can confidently know that they have everlasting life. As we finish up our time here, and we, we're going to be going into communion, we're going to be taking the elements together, and we're going to be remembering this very truth, that God is love, and the body of Jesus was broken, and his blood was poured out for us so that we might abide in his love for all eternity. That's what we're remembering at the table today. Let's confess any sins or fears to the Lord during this next song. Let's just give them over to him during this time. He knows where our heart's at. And let's remember that they've already been paid for by King Jesus.
let's go to the Lord's Supper with full confidence today. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ we stand. Would you pray with me?